Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I am one of the co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Glad to be back as ever. Um, and well, what a week it's been, Paul. Uh, my local football team, uh, very close to my heart, Cheltenham Town, came within oh what 15 minutes of one of the greatest upsets in FA Cup history, going one 0 up against Manchester City, albeit in an empty stadium on BBC One, no less, with an audience of some 15 million, which is insane. Um, aside from that, Conor McGregor got knocked out. So you know, you win some, you lose some. Uh, there, there were bright sparks in the in the week as well. How's your week been? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, the the uh, Godzilla versus Kong trailers dropped, so that I've watched that about nineteen times. I'll be honest. So that's uh, basically been the highlight of my week. To be honest, I was like, yeah. A, I think my wife watched the trailer just watching my face more than the actual trailer, um, and it didn't disappoint. So <laughs> yeah, I, I sense that there was uh, there was some level of excitement because of the way you've talked about it, but also the fact that as soon as I think it was readily available to the public, it was also thrown into our WhatsApp chat group for the show. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, yeah, Paul's been. Uh, you, you got like Google alerts on or whatever for when they were going to drop yeah. that thing, and as soon as it was there, <laughs> pretty much, yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, but yeah, apart from that, pretty standard week to be honest. So yeah, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. Well, generally speaking, we start the show in the foyer when we do traditional shows, which we're getting back to now or standard shows. So maybe we'll start there for today, and that's where we'll talk about some film news and bits and pieces that have come up, maybe including the new trailer that you're jazzed for. But in addition to that, we should explain what's on today's show. You are listening to Strangers in a Cinema, and we always provide features, reviews, news, and so on. This week is no different. We have a big feature of the new Netflix film, uh, which is The White Tiger. We'll get to that in due course. And sort of piggybacking off that, we're going to bring back the top fives this week. We're going to have a top five movie entrepreneurs. So rather than the films themselves featuring entrepreneurs or worse still, films that will inspire entrepreneurs, which is a subgenre of YouTube that will make you sick, we're going to focus instead <laughs> on what we think to be some of the most interesting maybe entrepreneurs on film. Uh, in addition to that, we'll have, of course, Popcorn Movies, where we talk about the movies that we've seen recently. But before all of that, Paul, jumping into the foyer, what do you want to talk about this week? Shall we start at the, you know, at Adam Wingard station for this week? Let's start at the Adam Wingard station. Uh, yeah, this is the, the trailer's finally dropped for Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Kong. Um, yeah, as you know, if you listen to the most anticipated films list, I'm quite excited about this one. Um... Yeah, it's it's very weird we haven't seen anything of this before now, which kind of had alarm bells ringing, to be honest, because it's now due out in March in the US. So it's a very, very, very close to its US release. Where we, when we see it in the UK, I think it depends very much on whether and when cinemas can reopen. But we'll, maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I was excited about this anyway. I'm even more excited from the trailer. I think the one thing that stood out for me um, is the fact that, uh, you know, King of Monsters, the previous Godzilla film, um, is not a fantastic film, but it didn't stop me loving it. I've, been, I've made my thoughts quite clear on that. But one of its biggest faults is that was all, a lot of it, and far too much of it, was arguably set at night. So the first thing that looks really positive is we've got a lot of daytime settings. The special effects look incredible. That the fight scenes just, I think, are going to be absolutely spectacular. I've got a theory uh, on what's going to happen in the story, but I'm not going to share that here in the danger of risking spoilers. But I, this, for me, uh, this is this is a really really strong trailer. Um, 
And yeah, my excitement levels have got even higher now, Pete. Pete, what did you think of this? Um, I think the thing that, that hooked me in terms of uh, initial impressions off what is what, like a two and a half minute trailer, admittedly, uh, the fact that we've got Alexander Skarsgård and Rebecca Hall in leading roles. And I think that both of those people are just engaging screen presences. And, and there's something about that casting that feels to me like almost perfect, perhaps, in the sense of rooting this thing in strong character actors and not merely resting all of the expectations on pure spectacle. As much as I think, and I think we both feel this way, that Adam Wingard is the kind of guy who is perhaps ready to take that step into providing the kind of spectacle that you'd hope for when you call your movie Godzilla versus Kong. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm really excited. And, and the thing is, Paul, I just feel like I've been burned a couple of times and I, and I want to be more excited, but I guess there's a sort of cautiousness I feel here um, with some of the maybe um, recent offerings of both Godzilla and Kong on the big screen, to be fair. So, um, yeah, tentatively optimistic, maybe less so than you, but I'd love to be proved wrong. Yeah, I think all of that's fair, to be honest, as I said this, but, you know, it's certainly been a mixed bag um, in terms of the uh, the monster movies of late. Um, thing is, I'm just easily pleased, so I've got a feeling that I'm going to love this, even if it's piss poor. But, you know, hopefully it will deliver not just for fans of giant monsters beating the shit out of each other, uh, but also for fans of film as well. Yeah, so, uh, well, yeah, hopefully Wingard can deliver both. But Well, here here is uh, here is another uh, great hope for me. Uh, Julian Dennison's in this. You know, the guy from uh, uh, Wilder People, to hunt for the world of people that little kid who's obsessed nice. with uh, west coast east coast warring hip-hop <laughs> yeah. factions so yeah having that guy around all good uh isaac gonzalez is in it who is unbelievably beautiful so i mean there's a lot of reasons to roll up to this one and and, and not least again referring to the fact that it's called godzilla versus kong what else do you want um Paul, what else have we got on the radar this week for for news? Um, so, talking of um, talking of cinemas and cinematic releases, this is the news that a number of high profile figures, including um, Christopher Nolan, uh, Steve McQueen, who else? Pete was on this list. Sorry, it escapes me. And um, Barbara Broccoli, um, of course, who, who frequently collaborates with Chris Nolan. Um, is on the list as well. Yeah, so th this idea that a group of film industry's highest profile, most influential names have... Well, Danny Boyle's in here as well, I suppose we should throw that in, have uh, written this open letter to the government calling for government support for large cinema chains whose businesses have been threatened during the pandemic... And of course, this is something that's come up on the show as well, when we've talked before with, well, not only between ourselves, but also with uh, people who work within that sphere about the threat to large chain distribution. Whatever stones we might throw at the large chains in, in terms of some of their pretty despicable business practices, not least the you know mass doling out of zero hour contracts, and maybe we'll get to that. We want cinemas to exist, of course. We, you know, run a show called Strangers in a Cinema, not strangers locked at home without anywhere to watch films with other people. So you would hope that this kind of thing can make some kind of a difference. I mean, it seems like our government right now responds mostly to uh, being humiliated publicly. <laughs> so perhaps this will, will work in that regard. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, and I think it's I think it's very easy to from an outsider looking in to look at these big companies and go, well, they're massive companies, they'll be fine, um, they'll you know they'll weather the storm, and they are certainly are part of big companies. But when you think that their one revenue stream is putting on films, um, and even the film the film exhibition side of it isn't the most profitable bit by a long stretch, it's the selling of popcorn, 
it's the selling of you know the condiments and that kind of thing which are always quite pricey but you know that you, you sit there and you i think it's very easy just to take these massive exhibitors for granted and just assume they'll weather the storm because they've been with us for however many years uh but if they they're not open at the moment so they can't bring any money in at all um and yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you pete to be honest i think i think yeah obviously i want cinema to stay you know, we talked a lot about this i love going to the cinema i'll go on my own it's you know a big busy film release it's always nice sometimes nice to see a, a busy film if everyone's behaving themselves but still the cinema is certainly the place to see films you look at godzilla versus kong for example like that is a film absolutely made for the cinema we've got dune later this year um bond um like these a lot of the bigger budget films work a lot better on the big screen mission impossible 7 you know the list goes on and on and on really the films that are kind of made to work to work on the big screen better than they do at home so um hopefully something can be done i understand that there's you know i imagine a number of industries are sort of going to the government cap in hand at the moment for more money um but you know the cinema is an industry that just can't operate full stop at the moment so um it's not like it can run at a limited capacity and kind of make enough to keep the lights on there's there's no revenue stream coming in at all so hopefully something can be done otherwise i do i do worry for the future of cinemas it also hands a lot of power back to the studios as we'll discuss as you know as we'll get to in a minute with another christopher nona story we wanted to talk about so yeah i mean the, the thrust of this thing is is all pretty um earnest and fulsome stuff as you would expect i mean the the, the open letter says things like uh, cinema going offers proven benefits when it comes to jobs high street footfall and community cohesion uh, the last of the which is particularly important at this time i think uh, the need for direct financial support is pressing so goes the letter um, and it also adds that we very much hope the government will respond to this call uk cinemas stand on the edge of an abyss we urgently need targeted funding support to ensure that future generations can enjoy the magic of cinema. And I mean, this is true. I mean, we now as a generation are suffering through the situation, uh, you know, around the world, not limited to the UK, of course. But then it's the next generation, isn't it? It's, you know, we grew up being taken to the cinema, having those formative experiences in the cinema. And the worry is that that just won't be around for future generations, our children and children's children and so on. I just wanted to add, Paul, and I mean, we're not going to get too into this because I think both of us will explode in sort of visceral rage. But this is in the same week that uh, the Cineworld chain, it seems like, have been lining up a bonus package somewhere around £211 million, I think, distributed amongst their top um, level uh, directors, bosses, and so on, whilst the vast majority of their workforce workforce is sort of floundering, uh, trying to get by on the diminishing returns of zero-hour contract furlough pay. So it's a sticky situation, is it not? I mean, on the one hand, you think, you know, these organisations deserve to die, but then we can't allow them to die because then a big chunk of the industry dies. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I'm entirely with you, you know, especially in you know, Cineworld, uh, especially, you know, um, have suffered my uh, on a number of occasions on this show. Um, and, you know, behaviour like that doesn't really warm the public to them. But as you say, you know, without cinemas, the, unfortunately, these companies are running cinemas at the moment. And, you know, we need we need cinemas for film exhibitions. So it's a double edged sword, really. You know, I'd, maybe Cineworld goes and someone else takes them over. But, you know, Cineworld aren't the only ones paying zero hour contracts to their employees. They're certainly not the only guilty party um, in terms of in terms of what I consider to be an abhorrent um, uh, employment practice. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. But, yeah, you you know should you be yeah it's it's a difficult question to answer um but ultimately what the other answer is no cinemas i think at the moment um 
Yeah, which segues us in probably into what Christopher Nolan's had to say this week about Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah, so what have we got here? So Chris Nolan obviously connected to this first story, but then what's the development with Chris Nolan and Warner? So Christopher Nolan is, well, he's fallen out with Warner's in quite a big way. Um, he said a number of things, quite a lot of things, probably too too long to quote here, um, in response to the news that Warner's would have moved more, pretty much all of their 2021 releases to day and date release on HBO Max and in cinemas. Um, so a number of filmmakers, Christopher Nolan, Denny Villeneuve included, um, have come out and said this is disgraceful, this is not acceptable, and also because they want their film shown in the cinema. Um, and it's not just the fact that they've moved them to HBO Max that I think Nolan and a number of other filmmakers have taken issue with. It's the fact that they just went completely behind everyone's back. So Legendary Pictures didn't know they were doing it. Legendary Pictures put up, I think, 75% of the production budget for most of these films. Um, which is, you know, when films cost as much as they do to make, that's a lot of money. So Legendary Pictures, I think we're going to take Warners to court. They've kind of settled with, a, I think, $250 million a film or something, some insane amount of money. But um, Nolan, it's looking like Nolan may now part ways with Warner completely, um, which would be a big blow to the studio, but it could have interesting ramifications for Nolan's work in future, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we'll have to watch this space and see how that develops because of the fact that Nolan holds such a significant position in the landscape right now. I mean, there's going to be a ripple effect here. Um, I just wanted to tag on, Paul, the fact that, and I mean, not to bring this whole show down before we've got into our stride, but uh, more delays, delays to both Cannes Film Festival, which of course was cancelled eventually in 2020, and also to No Time to Die, the new James Bond movie, which has been pushed back yet again. So Cannes would traditionally take place in May, has now been pushed to July. The organisers are determined that there will be some kind of physical festival this year. I mean, determination won't necessarily overcome the you know global pandemic but we'll see what happens there and then of course the decision has been taken to push bond and his cohorts to later in the year as well uh it will now arrive the 8th of October, so we're told, uh, Daniel Craig's final outing as Bond. I mean, apart from a just sort of general malaise and creeping depression, how do you feel about these things? I'm, I'm intrigued with this one because it's now, what, 18? It'll be, what, coming, getting on for 18 months late uh, by the time it comes out. So it's going to cost the studio a lot of money. Um, I noticed they haven't, they haven't ratcheted up a marketing campaign again this time around, so they seem to have learnt, learnt from that. Um it's a tricky one. I understand, you know, they, you, they could sit there and go, well, why aren't they taking the same approach as, as, H, as Warner Brothers are with the HBO Max? But then that's Warner Brothers' own platform. Uh, they did, sh I believe they, there's a rumour that they did shop around the Bond film to a number of streamers, but no one could come up with something like the 350, 400 million that they wanted for it. Um, that might, that might, the figure might even be higher than that, to be fair. So I don't, I, I, you know, I think from from my perspective, cinemas are going to need films when they reopen so i think this is probably the best decision i think although it's frustrating to to wait longer for this one um it is a film definitely meant to see on the big screen cinemas are going to need this because bond is bond is a is a tentpole for cinemas there's no doubt about it so um in some ways positive um obviously negative there's been another delay i don't know i'm part of me thinks we still may see this creep onto a streaming service um way before that date but we shall see yeah i mean i suppose the thinking would go would it not if we're being somewhat tentatively optimistic that cinemas might be in the process of reopening somewhere around let's say late summer and here the release in october 
maybe indicates the um, hesitancy that exists to put the release anywhere too close to when cinemas might be reopening for fear of the fact that that would be short-lived, mm. cinemas would close, and then you've already put the film out into the wild. I mean, just to you know, cheer everyone up further, of course, there have been... Uh, other pushbacks recently, as I'm sure people are aware. Uh, the Sopranos prequel, Many Saints of Newark, has been pushed back. Uh, the uh, well, Peter Rabbit 2, I'm sure we'll live, has been pushed back. Uh, <laughs> Ghostbusters pushed back, Afterlife back, back, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> has been pushed back, yes. Uh, but then Uncharted, the video game adaptation with Tom Holland, that one was supposed to be out in 2021, now apparently February 2022 for that release. Morbius, the Jared Leto superhero flick, is going to be, uh, well, was previously going to be 8th of October. That's now been taken by Bond, so this will be pushed back to January 2022. So on and on we go. Um, yeah, there'll be good news soon, guys, and the news section is going to get incredibly <laughs> cheerful as the year picks up and becomes glorious. But for now, uh, not so much. However, that won't stop us getting into a, a cheerier disposition, Paul, for our next section, which is, of course, popcorn movies. Right after this. So back we are with uh, Popcorn Movies. This is the section of the show where we talk about films we've seen uh, since the last podcast, generally, which can be of any age, uh, anything, really, to be honest. It's a pretty loose section, which I always quite enjoy. So, um, yeah, the first film I wanted to talk about this week um, is an early George Romero effort from 1971 called There's Always Vanilla. Uh, I knew nothing about this film when I went into watching it, uh, like zero. I'm quite a big Romero fan, um, apparently not big enough because I didn't know anything about this film. Um, but yeah, there's always vanilla. Is I would say the best way I've described this is kind of a, a counterculture romantic comedy, um, which is not what I expected from George Romero. Um, so initially, what, what kind of when it opened up, I kind of found myself quite confused and a little bit baffled as to what was going on, and thought, no, mate, I'll, I'll give this, I'll give this a ride. Um, uh, it's not very good. Is is the is the probably my, my biggest takeaway from this? I, it's very kind of very weird to be honest. Um, a young man. I go, go to IMDb for the synopsis here. Uh, a young man returns from his home city of Pittsburgh and moves in with an older woman, whom he begins rely to rely on for an emotional and financial support. So, yeah, kind of, yeah. It just my biggest problem with it is without going too much into the plot. It it wasn't very funny to be honest, it didn't make me laugh at all, and I kind of, it was a slog to get through all the hour and 33 minutes, like a, a real slog, kind of, I sat there thinking, what am I supposed to make of this, I don't, I didn't know for the kind of, the first half, well, I didn't know, to be honest, until I did some reading about the film afterwards, that it was even intended to be a comedy, I just, I didn't really know what I was watching, the, the characters felt flat, the film fell flat, and, um, yeah, I, I can't heartily recommend this one. So if you are looking to catch up with some older George A. Romero work, then um, I'd probably give this one a swerve, to be honest. Maybe a bit more of a recommendation than it sounds like that is, Paul, is first for me this week, uh, showing currently on the excellent movie platform. This one is The Other Lamb from a director called Malgazata Zumowska, let's say. Uh, Polish uh, female director and it stars Rafi Cassidy of Stranger Things fame and Michael Huisman who people have seen and got to know through things like The Age of Adeline but particularly I guess Game of Thrones um, an incredibly handsome high cheekbone man uh, he plays here a rather sinister figure to say the least he is known in the um, the cast list here literally as Shepherd, and he guides his flock through what I believe is uh, perhaps rural Ireland um, but 
in this case, uh, it's a sort of American-Irish co-production or European-Irish co-production perhaps as well. Um, And a cult movie in the vein of something like Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene that I like to shoehorn in on the show, but very different in its execution. This is a film that deals with one man as a kind of charismatic central figure and a group of two generations of women, one group known as the mothers and another known as the sisters, who are basically farmed like cattle by this one man. And they all act as his sort of, um, what's that word? Not entourage, like a harem, a harem of women. And he selects them at will to um, have sex with him, to perform tasks for him, to take care of the homestead. At one point, they have to move on and find a new home. So he's there to literally and figuratively guide them uh, on this journey. Huizman at the centre is pretty charismatic, if a little bit difficult to read. And I think that's almost to the film's benefit. It's beautifully shot, really beautifully shot, almost to a fault, where at times it all seems a little bit opaque. There's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of maybe meaning bubbling below the surface, but there's not a great deal of narrative. And this is what feels like to me, judging the critical response, at least the main criticism of the film is that lack of narrative. But very interesting in terms of its ideas and the fact that everything about what it is to be a woman is essentially rejected here. So aging is unacceptable. When you become older, you are called a broken thing. Um, Menstruation is certainly unacceptable and very much a theme that runs throughout the film. Resistance is, of course, unacceptable. Any questioning of this leader is unacceptable. And, you know, within the recent political developments in the world, um, there are some resonances that you could find perhaps here uh, if you were to look for them. Uh, At one point, we get this fantastic quote uh, from one of the mothers who is now described as a broken thing, who says his attention is like the sun it's bright and glorious at first but then it just burns and that kind of encapsulates what's going on here it's dark it's brooding it's moody it's a little bit difficult to pin down but it's certainly an interesting film and it's certainly anchored I think by Rafi Cassidy's performance and of course Michael Huisman that I mentioned so I would recommend it just with a couple of maybe caveats about the fact that it might be a bit trying on the patience and you do have to invest a little bit but that's the other lamb on movie right now nice I might give that a watch this afternoon actually I've been keeping an eye on that one so uh, thank you for that um, the next one for me, again, not another Sterling recommendation, unfortunately. It's not been a great week for me, I'll be honest. Um, this is Horizon Line, which I think came which I think came out very briefly at cinemas last year. Um, this is directed by uh, Mikhail Marcimane. Uh, stars Alison Williams, um, a guy I don't recognise and probably won't see him much again, called Alexander Draymond. Uh, Keith David turns up very briefly in this, which is probably the only highlight of this film. Um, basically, uh, a couple are flying to a wedding on a tropical island uh, as the as their um, pilot, this isn't a spoiler, it's in the trailer, as their pilot, played by Keith David, uh, has a heart attack and dies. They are then left in control of a plane. Um, Alison Williams' character has had about an hour's worth of flight time and they have to land, they essentially have to try and get to safety. They end up flying the plane through a storm. 
Um, oh, so far sounds like it should be entertaining. Um, and, you know, you, you go, you don't go into a, a kind of disaster movie like this one expecting, you know, a, a first class script or necessarily first class performances. And these films certainly don't always need that. Um, but this doesn't. This has kind of third class performances and a third class script. Unfortunately, it just I was just bored. Um, and to be bored in a film like this is is never good. The the suspension of disbelief is just pushed far too far here for this to be entertaining. At some point, Alison Williams' character is out on the wing of a plane in the middle of in in this kind of stormy environment, and she holds onto the wing of a moving plane with one arm on a regular basis. The stunts are, are, are ridiculous. It just pushes pushes believability too far. And I don't know, man. Like Alison Williams, I think should probably get a better agent than than doing work like this. She's not great here, to be honest. It's a very flat performance. She seems bored throughout, as does. Um, a guy I've not seen before, like a, I would best describe him as, he looks like a bit like a bargain basement Channing Tatum, a guy called Alexander Draymond. He's not fantastic here. It just fell very, very flat. Um, and again, you know, I just I want to make it clear, I wasn't expecting a masterpiece, but I was expecting to be entertained, and I really wasn't. So I would steer well clear of Horizon Line, unfortunately. Yeah, it's an interesting one, because looking at the, the poster art for this and the kind of basic synopsis that you provided, this would be the kind of thing that I probably would check out, but it doesn't sound like it necessarily stands out from the crowd in terms of disaster movies. Uh, it does stand out from the crowd as being one of the worst I've seen recently, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the font makes me a bit suspicious. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like that would be a justified suspicion. Uh, the next one for me is a film that I've seen for the first time, quite for the first time. It's Belle de Jour from uh, Louis Bunuel. This is one of those films that I guess um, pe people always recommend, say that you should have seen. It feels like a sort of vital watch and one that has taken me 37 years, my, years of my life to get around to. But uh, I suppose for the first 18 of those years, it would have been entirely inappropriate. This is a film that tells the story of... A, effectively a bored housewife and one of the films recently that I gave a lot of praise to really came to mind when watching this and that is uh, Swallow and I think that the filmmakers there have taken a lot of inspiration from the way not only that this thing is sort of um, staged but also particular specific shots in the film as well have a sort of uh, echo from um, Belle de Jour. Uh, Catherine Deneuve is in the lead role she's this bored housewife who Here's word of the fact that houses still exist, a euphemistic way of talking about brothels, and that there may be the opportunity to work in one of these houses. And why would she do such a thing? Well, it seems like there's something inside her that just wants to break away from what is a pretty mundane, seemingly near loveless and certainly sexless marriage to her husband. She's not interested. She's not engaged by him seemingly. And so maybe she can explore herself and her desire further by throwing herself in at the deep end, working in effectively a brothel for a madame. Um, in this film, what I found to be so uh, kind of bracing and so interesting about it is the way that as a straight narrative... I think it's not without its merits. It's somewhat interesting. It's an interesting character study. But what you realise is that Bunuel's playing with the idea of reality and non-reality, um, sort of daydream and fantasy compared with scenes that are actually taking place as part of the story. And, and the easiest, I guess, hook here would be to to latch on to a director like David Lynch who's clearly influenced by this kind of stuff and all the way to the end of the movie I thought I've enjoyed this but I don't think it necessarily stands 
as highly as I might have expected. And then without giving anything away, just the way that it's wrapped up. And one of those films that leaves you with a sort of sense of um, unease, but also um, a sort of comforting confusion, I guess, for want of a better description. Um, yeah, just the way it's brought into land, I think, is is fantastic. And um, so I would very much recommend it. And I don't really want to say too much more because that might be to spoil some of the perhaps... Um, oblique mystery of uh, Belle de Jour. But yeah, that one was uh, good. It's currently on BFI Player, uh, by the way. Um, what else for you, Paul? I've not seen it, actually, so that's one I need to get to, to be honest. So um, yeah, I'll check it out. Thanks for that. Um, the last one for me this week is, <laughs> what a surprise, uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, this is the 1960s original, well, I say, uh, yeah, original original Battle of the Titans, um, directed by uh, Ishoro Honda and Tom Montgomery. Tom Montgomery, I don't know a great deal about Ishoro Honda, directed the original Godzilla film. So it was a co-production between Toho and Hollywood, essentially. Um yeah, King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, both monsters, both of these monsters are in it. Both of them have quite a lengthy fight scene, so therefore it's a winner in my book. Um, it's absolutely bonkers. There's a scene. I mean, I, you know, what more do you want than a scene where Kong fights a giant octopus? Um, at one point, Kong is floated towards where Godzilla uh, is by giant helium balloons. Um, there's there's rockets full of berry juice. Um, and Kong fights Godzilla. It's very, very silly. You know, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. If you've never seen any of the original Godzilla films, then um, they're an acquired taste. I think it would be would be fair to say. It's just essentially men running around in rubber suits, uh, fighting each other. The fight scene's highly entertaining. There's the classic scene, which I really hope comes back for the new film, where uh, Kong sticks a tree in Godzilla's mouth. Um, it's all very silly. It was all a lot of fun, uh, and I had a great time with it. So if you haven't caught up with it, and expect knowing Adam Wingard. I would expect a lot of deep cut references to this in the upcoming film, and I hope they're in there. Um, so yeah, I, I I enjoyed it. Is it a great film? No, not by a long stretch. But I had a I had a great time with it. So um, yeah, King Kong versus Godzilla is uh, just about recommended. <laughs> you, you, no one could possibly say that our popcorn movie sections aren't eclectic in terms of the uh, <laughs> combinations of things we come out with. Uh, the last one for me, it's almost the same film that you've just reviewed. It's a 16-minute uh, <laughs> avant-garde short film called Citadel. This one on Mubi as well. And actually, it goes into that bracket of Mubi exclusives. So yet another reason to get on board, I think, with that platform. Although maybe this this short in itself isn't going to sway people who are uh, unpersuaded so far. But what is interesting here is this is a film directed, produced and edited by one man. That's John Smith, who's made, I think, somewhere along the lines of 50, perhaps, uh, short films, experimental films, art installations, that kind of thing. And what it is, is a fixed position camera. In fact, I think there are two shots maybe out of two sides of the same building. And he started filming with this fixed position camera uh, out of his window, I think of his apartment building, um, early in 2020, last year. So what we get is a shot of inner city London with its skyline, with the shard and the gherkin and so on. And then clever use over the runtime of um, time-lapse photography, both still and moving image time-lapse photography, that shows the sort of subtly changing face of a city that is effectively dormant as a result of the ensuing coronavirus pandemic, which kicked off really in the UK in sort of February, March time. Set over the top of that, Smith includes archived audio of our 
dear leader Boris Johnson and some of the proclamations that he made, particularly damning being, of course, the early ones where he was sort of hand waving away the coronavirus as something that was going to try and trip people up in terms of, you know, getting on with the business of making money and industry that, you know, looks dreadful a minute later in the runtime here where you see what's happening globally and and also smith sort of does some odd stuff he um god knows how you even go about things like this so he has a moment in the film where he's picked up a sort of um there's like a voyeuristic thread of people in other neighboring apartments and you sort of see people doing star jumps in their apartment for example because now we're all exercising at home but then he uses the stop uh time lapse i should say photography to show lights coming on and off and then matches the lights coming on and off with sort of bleeping sounds not unlike what you might get when you um you sort of dial up early internet and so creates this sort of collage, this montage of sounds and images. Not all of it works. Sometimes it does feel a little bit like a half-finished project and that like it's suggested some ideas without really exploring them. But that feels to me somewhat intentional. It's sort of a provocation or at least um, it will get people thinking again, I guess. Whether it is something that you want to do, think about, you know, 2020 all over again and relive it here in a kind of compressed format is up to the viewer. But I found this thing interesting. And for 16 minutes of your time, I think it's worth a look. So that's Citadel on Movie right now. Nice. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, Popcorn Movies for this episode. We'll be back after this brief break with a review of The White Tiger. So we're back with today's feature review, and that is a feature of the Netflix-released film The White Tiger from somewhat of an indie darling film director, I suppose. Darling sounds like the wrong word for a man like Ramin Barani, but Ramin Barani is a guy who came to my attention, at least, for Man Push Car and Chop Shop, these movies about people trying to make the best of maybe difficult, disadvantaged situations, trying to make a, a buck, basically. And that's, I guess, somewhat uh, relevant here as we come into The White Tiger. More recently directed the excellent Andrew Garfield-fronted film 99 Homes, which I thought was one of the maybe best films about the uh, economic downturn in, in and around 2018. So, uh, yeah, Rowan Barani, a guy that I think when I see his name attached to a project, I have high hopes. In this case, he is responsible for telling the story of the journey of a poor Indian boy coming from an impoverished community who sees an opportunity to socially climb. He can take a job as a driver for wealthy um, masters, effectively, and then use that position to weasel his way into their affections and find more opportunities for himself in a country that is still in the grip of the caste system, where the place where you're born and the family you come from almost entirely dictates your destination in life. Uh, in the leading role here, we have an actor called Adash Gurav playing the character Balram, who is this boy growing into a man um, who will eventually find his way in the world for better or worse and within higher and higher um, circles of society. Before we get into our views on the film, let's hear a little clip. Do you know what the internet is? No, sir. But I could drive to the market right now, sir, and get as many as you want. No, it's okay. Thank you. Do you have Facebook? Yes, sir, books. I always love books, sir. Yeah, I heard you can read. Have you ever seen a computer? Uh, yes, sir. 
Actually, we had many of them in the village with the goats. Goats? Yes, sir. The goats are pretty advanced to use computers. I could tell from their faces. I had made a mistake. Pinky, you see, he's got two, three years schooling in him. He can't read and write. But he doesn't get what he's read. He's half-baked. Okay, now you're being a jerk. He's standing no, I'm right not, there. I'm, I'm not being a jerk. Mm, come on, Ashok. You're missing the point here, Pinky. Our driver represents the biggest untapped market in India, waiting to surf the web, buy a cell phone, rise up into middle class. Something I can help him do. You're the new India, Balram. I am the new India, sir. So my only experience of the director, weirdly enough, actually, is the not-so-good Fahrenheit 451 adaptation. That's the only time I've seen an Amin Baranid film before, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I wasn't really sure where this would go, what to make of this, and, and how excited I was about it. Um, and for the most part, I think it... it it was it was pretty good. Um, it, in all honesty, so there's obviously a few things to talk about. I think it's a, it's the kind of film where you I kind of went into it with a bit of trepidation because we've seen this kind of story done a lot. The kind of as we'll probably get to in the top five movie entrepreneurs uh, later on, but we've kind of seen this story done a lot. The kind of rags to riches tale um, of someone down their luck and then they the, how they how they turn their life around. Um, so I was a bit worried it it might be. It might be kind of overly generic, and it's kind of crosses ground that we've done before. But I think, for the most part, Pete, would you agree that it didn't it didn't fall into those traps? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think the film is is rich enough, um, forgive the pun, for that not to, for me at least to to have become sort of a major problem in terms of its fairly conventional nar narrative and the way that we move through the plot beats, knowing to some extent where this thing might be going. Never felt to me like a big problem, and I think I do put that down to the the way in which this thing is is put together, the way that the director, who of course was someone who um, Roger Ebert at the end of his life made a particular push for in terms of the way that he was pushing um, Man Push Cart. Sorry, I've done it again by mistake. Uh, yes, he was pushing Man Push Cart. Uh, <laughs> and so I think that Barani brings a sort of flair to the telling of this story that may be a more conventional or maybe more um, standard film director Main, might, director. might not. Yeah, yeah, perhaps that's right. Um, I mean, things like little fantasy insert sequences that we have here where the uh, lead character imagines possible consequences that are then played out dramatically but didn't actually happen. I appreciated stuff like that. Little touches like the fact that our central character as he works his way up is um, somewhat seemingly obsessed with drinking little packets of sugar as a way of feeling kind of decadent I suppose when you know all around him have wealth far beyond the world of packets of sugar and also I think important to discuss Paul is this interplay between the couple that he drives for and the central character so this couple played by Rajkumar Rao and Priyanka Chopra that people will know not least from things like Baywatch that I liked and I don't think you did very much um <laughs> But I think that there's an interesting dynamic there because Chopra's character is this uh, American Indian woman or Indian American woman, I should say, who has spent her life growing up in the States and brings, therefore, expectations and perhaps a shortness of patience to the situations presented in Indian society that I think plays interestingly against this central character who is spouting back to her the idea that you know, you are a servant to your masters, you do everything that your masters want you to, and that's your way to work your way up. Whereas she's calling that out as kind of bullshit. Um, what did you think about not only the central performance, but I guess the supporting performances as well there? 
I think the supporting performances were were strong. To be fair, I think this is this is probably the best I've seen Priyanka Chopra in in any film. I think she's she's certainly given a lot more to do in this role than we, than the roles we normally see her in. And I think she was. I think it was a it was a strong supporting performance um, for sure. And I also I did like the um, I did like um, uh, Raj. Is it Rajkumar Rao uh, yeah. as a shock? Um, Rajkumar Rao's performance as a shock. I thought he was. I thought he, it was a good performance. And the, again. He seemed to be a character, almost probably for me, probably more interesting than Bianca Chopra's character because he was a character that had experienced life in the U.S. and kind of in a part of him seemed to go, okay, this cast is bollocks. Like we need to move past this. I don't like this. And then the other part of him, like as the film goes on, there's that the conflict, the conflict in him between sort of more tradition and traditional Indian family values that he's used to. Um, and kind of being taking a different approach to having people work for him, I thought was um, certainly one of the film's strengths. So I thought they, 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 both their characters were, were interesting and I think strong, strong supporting performances from both for sure. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's easy to forget or not to realise, I guess, um, because on the show, and I mean, we can both hold our hands up to this, we don't cover a lot of Indian cinema and somebody like... Um, your guy Rajkumar Rao and certainly Priyanka Chopra are massive stars. I mean, if you look at even something that I I hate using as a sort of metric here, but Priyanka Chopra has got something like 50 to 60 million uh, followers on Instagram, I think. And, you mm. know, you see her in a supporting role in some big budget Hollywood thing like Baywatch and you think like, oh, this person showed up five minutes ago. But I mean, she's been in scores of films and has created a huge profile in a part of the world that has a much greater population than our own tiny island, for example. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's easy to overlook that. And, and I think that, yeah, like you said, quite rightly, there's this interesting interplay because you've got characters in that triumvirate there that are coming from sort of three different positions. And your, I guess, sympathy lies initially with our central character, but not necessarily, it's not necessarily taken for granted that everything he does in the film is good or right or wholesome or even that necessarily the path that he's taking is as virtuous as he claims it to be I mean there's this idea presented early in the film it's sort of thematically important I think where uh, the voiceover notes that the uh, chickens in the coop, I think they're cockerels in the coop, um, watch their fellow chickens be uh, slaughtered and sort of sliced and diced at the market. But even though they see what's coming to them as well, they don't try and do anything to get out of their predicament. And this idea that people who are in a class of sort of servitude aren't doing anything or aren't doing enough to get out of that position is something that I think a viewer could reject as well, um, given the the difficulties in navigating that kind of terrain and the risks that you're taking. And of course, our character here is a sort of one in a million story of someone who manages to get to a position of success. I mean, we even breaks the fourth wall at the end to announce that he's succeeded. But it's, I think it leaves you with questions and not just answers. And going back to the original point about it being fairly standard as a narrative, I think that's to its credit because this could be very much a sort of slumdog millionaire feels good, do a dance number. We've had our once every few years dose of Bollywood cinema. And it didn't feel like that to me. It felt like a, a more thoughtful film. Perhaps. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think it, and that's what probably what kept me watching, to be honest, because it doesn't, um, it would have been very easy to fill in, to fall into sort of rote conventions and, and it doesn't tend to do that, which is good. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm on board, I'm on board with that entirely. 
yeah, anything else to say before we go? Oh, I did want to mention this, Paul. Like one of my favourite moments from films this year, which of course is a small um, selection group at this point, but is where a character known only as Vitiligo in the movie is uh, trying to take our central guy under his wing when he becomes a driver and sort of teaching him the lay of the land and uh, tells him that if he plays his cards right, he can have all of the the fine things of the world and the list I, I noted down on my phone and I think there might be one more item but what he listed was foreign wines golf balls and girls and I just love the inclusion of golf <laughs> balls into the things that you can aspire for but uh, yeah like little touches like that I think are, are what sort of elevate this above the standard as we we've been saying in this review and so I think it sounds like like you as well I would recommend this and I think this is as far as Netflix product go um, and that conversation again this feels like a, a really good piece of work and the kind of filmmaker that it's pleasing to see getting backing on the platform that's sort of dominant at this point in time absolutely yeah and I think it's yeah it's definitely one of the more interesting Netflix films we've seen uh, we've seen for a while so um, yeah the fact they're making room for projects like this is good it's not all plain sailing though I, I will say I did think um, that uh, there's a sort of large phase of the no, I say large phase of the film I think the film is probably 10-15 minutes too long for my taste it kind of it does drag a little bit in places and we see or, or not necessarily too long but I think that there's there's a lot of the a lot of the vast majority of the film is telling the story of how of how he gets into a position where he can make his play for success and then for me like you almost felt like a sort of a post-credits epilogue epilogue which when he finally does it, it moves towards him getting successful i thought the film took its time getting there and then very much rushed the rushed the closure i'd like to have seen a bit more i'd like to have seen a bit more of the the kind of the closing sort of 10 minutes of the film really um and that kind of let me down a little bit because that that just felt very very rushed i think um, it kind of speeded to its finale when it could have taken a bit more time with that especially when there's other elements of the story i thought could have been trimmed down a little bit so that frustrated me a, a touch um it doesn't it doesn't ruined the film for me but I think it could have certainly could have been tighter and maybe some slightly different narrative choices made um yeah it's it's an interesting one that Paul though isn't it because this director is a guy who has come from very very low budget filmmaking and making a name for himself on projects that would be sort of in the case of uh, the first couple that I mentioned Man Push Cart and Chop Shop like sub an hour and a half because of budgetary constraints and you know the limitations placed on a filmmaker at that point and then you come along the line to what I think previous to this and possibly after this as well I would perhaps um, suggest his best film uh, 99 Homes. 99 Homes is almost two hours long and I think that as a a filmmaker coming up in the industry, if we're going to put it that way, it's got to be a difficult balance to strike when you've got a bigger budget, when you've got a bigger canvas to rein in that runtime. Because I think I agree with you that this thing probably could have been trimmed a bit, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that that's got to be, yeah, like a, a difficult balancing act, um, trying to fully express a story of this scale while keeping the runtime down. Because whenever we see, you know, rags to riches, um, epic story of one guy's journey through life type narratives. I, I, I struggle to think of films that are under two hours in that particular genre, you know, because yeah. there's just so much of a life to encapsulate. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. And I suppose the challenge for the filmmaker then is to make the viewer feel as though it isn't too long. And so if you ended up feeling that way, or we perhaps both ended up feeling that way, perhaps that is a slight rub on the film, that there were moments that lose you a little bit compared to the, the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I said, it just, yeah, if it had been a bit tighter, I think, I don't know, as I said, I, I, 
I, d I didn't quite love it um, just because of that reason. But I know where you're coming from. Like, what do you cut? And again, they're working with source material here. So it's always a tricky one to balance. What do you cut and what do you leave in the film? But um, no, overall, like, yeah, I had I had a good time with it. The performances were strong. The film's, in, the film's engaging. Um, and yeah, I did completely agree with you, Pete. It did feel... I think it asks a lot more questions than than kind of films in this genre normally ask of its audience. So I think it was uh, yeah overall look, it was a it was a decent watch. It, it might be a weird comparison because I'm not suggesting Ramin Barani and this director are anything alike, but it reminds me this point of um, Wasp Network that we reviewed not too long ago. In the sense that there you've got a story that's epic in scope, like it runs over a number of years, and of course directed by Olivia Assayas, who is a guy who is known for sort of art housey, smaller projects, character study, that kind of thing. And then we build in, you know, espionage and international borders and the passage of time. And the film runs over two hours and at times felt like a film that was longer than it should be. And I yeah. think for maybe a sort of similar reason, because there are imperfections in there that are highlighted by the running time. So it's an interesting thing, maybe a topic we'll come back to in the future. But talking of running time, Paul, I suppose we should jump out of our <laughs> review. Uh, we have, though, an exciting addendum to this show, which is the top five entrepreneurs in film, in our opinions, uh, right after this little break. So back we are for the final segment of the show, which is our top five uh, movie entrepreneurs. I think, well, we don't know each other's lists in advance of this, as, as usual with the top five. So it makes it a nice surprise for both of us as much as it does for you at home. Uh, I've My top five have ended up being all fictional characters, but that certainly wasn't the stipulation. So they may, we may well find there is a mix of uh, fictional characters and obviously a number of films based on entrepreneurs um, do tend to be based around real life kind of rags to riches stories. So I imagine there'll be some... Um, some characters based on, on real life people in the mix as well. Uh, before we get to the top five, um, there's a few honourable mentions we have we wanted to throw into the mix. So, Pete, I'll hand over to you for your, your honourable mentions. Yeah, I mean, just before that, I just want to reply on what you said there, Paul, which is, for me, the process of coming up with this top five was, was pretty simple in the end. I went onto YouTube and I watched a video that was entitled something like 40 movies that entrepreneurs will find inspiring. And it was one of the most sickening things I'd ever seen. Someone someone who, who clearly has no read on the thrust of films themselves, but instead just like, yeah, but in the end, this guy made money, so that's inspiring. And it made me feel like I needed to have a sort of wash and a shower. So I went a different way with the list. Rather than just go for, you know, business people in movies who seem to be making money. I looked around for articles and I found one which listed the four different types of entrepreneur from sort of small business, scalable startups, large companies, and then social enterprise. And I kind of tried to look for examples that I could stand by of interesting characters who have had those kind of entrepreneurial, um, I guess, trajectories uh, without getting too much of an icky feeling about the whole thing. But with that in mind, um, my honourable mentions are, there are a few. Paul. Uh, I've got Louis Bloom, the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal character from Nightcrawler. I've got Rudy Kunyawan. This is the guy who deals fake wine in the documentary Sour Grapes on Netflix. Right. It's really good. Uh, I've got Chris Wilton, played by Jonathan Reese mayers in Match Point, which I will stand by as being one of the better recent Woody Allens. Uh, Crystal, played by Riley Keough in American Honey, for obvious oh, reasons. That's a good, that Stars a good and Stripes pick. Bikini yeah. and <laughs> standing on 
with heads. Uh, then Frank Ag Abagnale, easy for me to say, Leonardo DiCaprio from Catch Me If You Can, which came very close to my top five, but wasn't there in the end. And then finally, one that was very dear to my heart and I could have shoehorned in, but left at sort of number six, let's say, is the character Arbor, played by Connor Chapman in the Cleo Barnard film, The Selfish Giant. And I kind of disallowed that one because... He's a kid trying to collect scrap metal to get by, the kind of thing Ramin Barani would make a film about. But I felt like maybe calling him an entrepreneur was going a little bit far. It was a little bit of a stretch. So I left him off, but that film's excellent. Check it out. What about you? Uh, yeah, I, I like the approach you've taken there because, yeah, I, much the same was kind of looking around and you've got sort of people recommending The Pursuit of Happiness as the number one film you should watch if you want to make loads of money. So, um, yeah, some pretty... Um, maybe I don't know them. Despicable is maybe too strong a word. But, yeah, I had a similar feeling when I'm kind of doing some research for this. So... Uh, probably why I've gone for a lot of fictional characters to be honest as opposed to real life ones but um, yeah some honourable mentions from me um, it doesn't always end well for these people but Tony Montana uh, from Scarface um, you know like a lot of a lot of these people who grasp for the moon they come unstuck in the end but you know before he before he got a little bit too greedy you can't argue that um, that he'd, he'd done a pretty good job of building a building a fairly wealthy drugs empire for himself played of course incredibly by Al Pacino with you know some absolutely iconic moments there um, DiCaprio's performance as Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street needs to come up. Um, absolutely. Um, I thought it was quite an entertaining take on it. And, you know, DiCaprio, I think, is a really strong actor. So Jordan Belfort's in the mix. Uh, and then Henry Hill, again, you know, from Goodfellas, uh, played so well by Ray Liotta. Uh, I thought was another was another honourable mention for me, but again, kind of reaches too far. Thankfully, mo most of the films about these people do show them overreaching and coming unstuck, which is always quite a nice end to, the, to some of these films. So, yeah, that's kind of my honourable mentions there. Um, I'll hand back to you, mm. Pete, to start with your number five uh, favourite movie entrepreneur. <laughs> I appreciate. Yeah, I, I also skipped over one, Paul, which uh, apologies if this person's on your list, although you'll be able to expand if so. But uh, Kiyu, the kid from Parasite, I thought was kind of a distillation of modern entrepreneurial spirit in terms of getting yourself in there with the, uh, the haves. But that is not my number five. My number five on this list of film entrepreneurs is Molly Bloom, played by Jessica Chastain in the Aaron Sorkin directed and written uh, film Molly's Game from just a few years back, uh, based on the book written by Molly Bloom, who of course is a real person. Uh, this is the true story of Molly Bloom's um, journey from being an Olympic class skier who breaks her back, this is early in the film, um, and then goes on to, I guess, refashion herself as a powerful, um, not to be fucked with, uh, dominant figure in the backroom casino world uh, of illicit card games, illegal card games, high stakes card games, and into her orbit come all of these Hollywood celebrities, the rich and famous of Los Angeles, people who are visiting specifically for these games as the stakes go up and up and up. And the reason I put this on the list is really, I guess, because this is that example of someone who takes a role in their business um, in this case, she's working for a guy initially um, who runs card games. And then they expand their role in the business to the point at which they no longer need the business that they came from. In fact, she's fired for effectively making too much money and breaks away and does her own thing. I've also put it on the list uh, or this person on the list because I think Jessica Chastain's performance in that hot streak where it seemed like every year we were getting a powerful Chastain performance uh, really stands... I would say almost head and shoulders above the movie itself. I don't think it's necessarily Aaron Sorkin's best writing. I'm not sure that it's 
Well, in fact, I'm convinced it's not Aaron Sorkin's best work overall. But I think that what Chastain does with the character is something rather rare in modern cinema and in cinema in general, which is a woman of such sort of ferocious power who's taking on such a usually male-dominated world and remoulding it in her own image and in, by her own design. So uh, Molly Bloom, played by Chastain in Molly's Game, gets my number five spot. Okay, my number five pick is... Uh, are you ready for this one? I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy this one. Uh, this is Baron Harkonnen uh, from the Dune film. We're going to go with ninety. We're going to go with Lynch's version because that's probably the most famous screen incarnation uh, for the time being. Um, Stellan Skarsgård, of course, playing him in the up and coming um, Villeneuve adaptation. Um, yeah, Baron Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. I mean, with a name like that, he's not a he's not a, certainly a, not a nice entrepreneur. But having uh, having sort of had the contract for the export and shipment of spice from the planet of Arrakis taken away from him, he hatches one of the most dastardly schemes in science fiction history, and is in basically almost entirely wipes out his competition in House Atreides. Um, ultimately, does come unstuck, but it's such a dastardly scheme uh, to take back control of the uh, one of the galaxy's most expensive resources that uh, he had to make the list for me. Um, and I just wanted to—I'm th- going to see if I can get a Dune mention in every episode between now and release of the film. But um, yeah, just wanted to throw Baron Harkonnen into the mix at number five. Well, I reckon you should get a dastardly scheme reference into every episode <laughs> if you can as well. I haven't heard that phrasing for a long time. I think it's very fitting on a list like this. <laughs> Um, number four for me, Paul, is my honourable uh, sort of cheat. You know, every time we do a top five and I do something that probably shouldn't be in that top five. Well, yeah, no, this well. is that. <laughs> so uh, this is from a documentary that I, I want to shoehorn in here. So I have. Uh, it's a documentary called Kesky Sen or Czech Dream. Uh, this one is, uh, I guess the entrepreneur is in fact entrepreneurs in the form of Vic, uh, Vic Klusak and Philip Ramunda. These are two Czech film students who decided to basically satirize the idea of entrepreneurship and largely uh, or more widely capitalism, let's say. Uh, what they basically do and the hook to watching this documentary, and it's vastly underseen in my opinion, is they launch or at least appear to launch a supermarket, a new supermarket, not unlike a sort of Lidl or Audi, a, a sort of cheap and cheerful supermarket. But really the action that they're taking is recruiting an advertising agency to do the legwork of making people aware of the launch of this supermarket. And so they have flyers, they have a street team, they have commercials on radio and television. The community in and around Prague are aware that this new supermarket's coming and the promotions involved in the launch of the supermarket are not to be missed. Imagine Black Friday, but for the launch of a store. And so they build the film to this climatic, like incredible sequence in which you've got all of these dozens and dozens of uh, Prague residents waiting at the edge of a field to go across to the frontage of the new supermarket and get in there and get the bargains that they are, you know, so uh, anticipating. But this is where the rug is pulled and the audience knows at this point there is no cinema. Uh, there is no cinema. There is no store, I should say. Sorry, I got uh, Mulholland Drive in my head for a second. Uh, but yeah, there is no store. There's a front and that's it. A literal front and a figurative front. There is no store. And so what you get is like this amazing sort of um, uh, prism through which you see society because you get people there who want to basically beat the shit out of these guys for having them on and tricking them and making them feel stupid. And then you have people who gather in this field as they realise that they've been had and say, you know what, this is the first time 
I went out of my house in a while or this got me talking to people that I haven't talked to before or let's sit down and enjoy, just enjoy being outside. And I mean, I guess this came back to mind again for the situation that we're in now with being locked down and the way in which people not unlike in sort of Dawn of the Dead are just like zombified going back to the place that they know in terms of everybody flooding into Tesco's on the daily or whatever, because that's what we've got. But yeah, I just think Chesky Sen is, yes, a bit of a cheat putting on the list because maybe they're satirizing entrepreneurs rather than being them. But I highly recommend it. It's, as I say, very much unseen. um, And so I think people should watch it. Uh, That is my number four. What about you? Nice. Uh, My number four is, this was a pretty obvious pick, to be honest, but it's on the list anyway, because uh, the character of Gordon Gecko from both Wall Street and Wall Street Money Never Sleeps um, is one of the, you know, an iconic film character, probably for all the wrong reasons, because he personifies uh, certainly American greed of of the 1980s. I say of the 1980s, uh, of probably the 1980s and, and ever since, to be honest. Um, and probably even before the 1980s, but let's not get too negative. Um, yeah, it's just kind of just the way he's dressed, um, Michael Douglas's performance, the lines he t- when he talks about greed being good. Um, it just, you know, it just absolutely sums up everything everything wrong with the with the monetary system and the quest for money. Um, so yeah, that would be why that would be why Gordon Gecko is is certainly on the list. Not some not someone particularly looked up to admire, as I said. Much like in fact, much like Baron Harkonnen, probably on the list for the wrong reasons, and definitely a man behind some dust schemes to make as much money as can as quickly as possible but you know absolutely an iconic an iconic movie character um and really really effective and yeah it's one of michael douglas's best roles i think and he's superb in superb in the role did you watch the shia labeouf money money never sleeps i did remake not remake sequel, it was a sequel wasn't it yeah, yeah it i haven't seen it yeah it's okay it's not not as not as strong as the original um but it's 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 okay uh, Douglas is good again. But yeah, just that's uh, number four, Gordon Gecko. Number three then for me is the, uh, again, I, I think this list is going a lot for, for sort of real life individuals, whether through documentary or depiction in fiction. But uh, this is Catherine Johnson played by Taraji P. Henson in Hidden Figures. And this of my list that I listed at the beginning of like different types of entrepreneur, this is that person working within already a giant corporation, somebody working with NASA who within their role within this giant corporation does something particularly special and entrepreneurial. In this case, Catherine Johnson, this real life figure as played by uh, Taraji Henson, is at the head, at the spearhead, I suppose, of um, calculations, computing and mathematics in early uh, manned flights to space that were undertaken by NASA. And of course, the story itself is pretty, um, I guess we could say, awards baiting and pretty uh, saccharine at times. And then also, you know, it has those big monologues that feel you know, you can see them being written on the page, I suppose. But I just thought in a list like this, I really wanted to put this Katherine Johnson character uh, in here somewhere because I find it pretty inspiring when you see people showing entrepreneurial spirit who are coming from a more difficult place. And they're not 
necessarily doing that at the detriment of others. You know, we, we get like stories of people who climb their way up from the bottom and then step on the necks of the people that they've left behind them. But here, that's not the case. This is someone who's coming from a disadvantaged position, but lifting other people up quite literally in the end, of course, through the work that she did with spaceflight. So uh, an amazing figure and also a really strong uh, sort of disciplined, focused, serious and human performance, I think, from Taraji P. Henson. So Catherine Johnson is my number three entrepreneur in film. It's a good shout. A really good shout, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, I really like that film as well. So, yeah, good one. Uh, number three for me is a character called C.C. Baxter, uh, played incredibly well by Jack Lemmon from the 1960 Billy Wilder film, The Apartment. Um, one of my... I just This is a film I only watched for the first time quite recently and worryingly thought it felt, that in terms of the story and where it goes, just felt, still feels uh, remarkably current. It's an incredible performance from Jack Lemmon, but also it's a brilliant scheme that C.C. Baxter hatches uh, while he's working for an insurance company called Consolidated Life. Um, basically, he kind to kind of work his way up the ladder. He kind of leaves his apartment. He, he allows he allows like higher company executives to use his apartment for their kind of for their kind of extramarital affairs and this kind of thing. Um, and hatches this scheme to to jump up in the company. Ultimately, has kind of epiphany um, to to see what he's doing is not necessarily okay. Uh, but it's a brilliant scheme, um, and it certainly you know the fact that this film still feels current today shows you the strength of it really. But it's a brilliant scheme. He's a brilliant character, uh, and that's why he's sitting at number three in my movie entrepreneurs. Nice uh, number two for me. I can just hear that guy that that you introduced me to once and we're both well aware of screaming SJW at me as I get towards the top of this list. <laughs> but uh, I will take that because my number two very much is a social justice warrior in the, the best sense. Uh, this is Amina Matthews from the documentary The Interrupters. It's uh, an example of social enterprise as a type of entrepreneur, going back to the loose theme of this list. But uh, this is a film directed by Steve James, the great Steve James, in my opinion, the guy who directed Hoop Dreams, one of my favourite films, fictional, non-fiction of all time, and also Life Itself, the Roger Ebert documentary that I mentioned earlier on, which Ramin mm. Barani had some sort of a role in, of course. Uh, it's uh, a thing that came about because of an article written by uh, Alex Kutlovsky, Kotlovitz, easy for me to say, a New York Times um, magazine article was written and published and then adapted by James into this film, which is a documentary telling the story of a group of interrupters who are in Chicago, in the Illinois area, and they basically see around them the amount of people that are dying because of gangland violence, because of drug violence, because of black-on-black -black violence, and they want to do something about this because they don't want to see more of their, their sons, their grandsons, their kids perishing on the streets of Chicago. At the centre of this effort is this woman, Amina Matthews, who's pretty incre incredible, like a force of nature, who at one point they have a meeting of a load of people who are working on the project, who are the interrupters, and she says to them, around this table we have over 500 years of prison time. So I think we know a little bit what we're wow. fighting against. And it's just really powerful work. I mean, reading up on Amina Matthews now, because the film itself came out, I think, somewhere 2014, I want to say. 2012, I might have to recheck. Uh, but... Uh, she now is a politician. She's running on a social justice platform. She's representing her community in Illinois. She continues to do this great work that was highlighted in the, the documentary. Um, and 
just a person, 2011, by the way, just a person to inspire others, I think, and to underline the fact that being an entrepreneur doesn't have to mean being a complete shit, but can in <laughs> fact mean, you know, building something good, building it rapidly, building it ruthlessly, using all your wits and all your skills and all your history and your, your knowledge, but bringing something about in society that's good and not just shifting product like obviously a lot of entrepreneurs aim to do. So uh, props to Amina Matthews and to Steve James. The documentary is fantastic. I, it used to be on Netflix. I'm not sure that it is now, but please search it out. The Interrupt is really good from 2011. Uh, that is my number two. Paul, what have you got? Uh, at number two, well, I'm at number two now, aren't I? Yes, I am. Yeah. I am indeed at number two. At number two is Citizen Kane. I don't know if you've heard of that film. Um, the, the, the film, you know, there's, there's a lot been said about Citizen Kane. Is it the greatest film of all time? I don't know. Is it a very good film? Yes, it is. Uh, but what is incredible about the film is certainly the character of Citizen Kane, uh, played impeccably here by Orson Welles, uh, or Charles Foster Kane, should, should I say, not Citizen Kane. Charles Foster Kane is the character, of course. Um, he's based in part on um, US media barons, William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Pulitzer, uh, and Joseph Pulitzer, and some other, among other things. I mean, you can see you can see echoes of any kind of media baron or big business person uh, before and after this film in uh, in Wells' performance here. Um, and it, it is Wells' performance that delivers this character. He's, he's a terrifying figure that knows exactly how to get what he wants. Uh, and kind of and, and make his way in business really so um icon iconic figure iconic film uh charles foster kane is my number two pick nice so that brings us to our uh number ones respectively there was only one paul there was only one for me that it could be at number one and this is somebody that i've mentioned in the last year or two on the show uh because of the uh release of the latest film by penny lane but this one is going back it's director penny lane's film nuts and the guy at its center dr john Romulus Brinkley, uh, definitely That's mentioned. A hell of a name. <laughs> yeah, definitely mentioned on the show previously. This incredible story, and it's been covered now. I know recently, I think it was Gimlet or NPR, one of the big American uh, radio and podcast networks, put out a new hour feature on the same topic uh, and referenced and cited uh, Penny Lane's work as well there. But it tells the story of this guy, the true story of this guy, who noticed that men in his community. Uh, where he had moved to work as a medical practitioner of a very little repute because he don't think he was formally qualified to do the things that he certainly the things that he ended up doing. But he presented an opportunity to the men of his community that he believed that he could heal um, cure impotence with the insertion of goat's testicles into the sack. Uh, sorry, of the men that came to visit him. So it was a testicle transplant, which would then bring about these men being incredibly virulent and renewed. And um, virulent? Virile. That's the word that I want there. Uh, and, you know, of course, that is absolute bullshit and loads of people died. Uh, but in addition to that, it wasn't enough that this guy was already performing these absolutely hellish procedures on people who were unwittingly handing over money for this stuff. But he then realised at that time that we were in, an, or he was in, an era where uh, radio technology was in its very infancy. And if he could harness the power of radio technology, then he could tell more people about his sort of snake oil medicines. <laughs> and so he expanded his empire wider and wider and wider to the point where the American government got wind of what was going on with Brinkley and tried to shut him down, at which point he realised, well, in order to 
to um, broadcast, I don't need to be in the United States because the range of the kind of equipment I can now build and fund with all the money I've made is so great that he just hopped over the Mexican border and started <laughs> broadcasting from Mexico into the United States, massive audience, and then he could sell everything. So he would just make up names of potions and he'd sell that. You know, if you want to feel more awake, oh, I've got the awakeness uh, formula. If you want to feel more, you know, driven and successful, I've got some sort of energy pill. Anything <laughs> you could think of, this guy would make it, he would advertise it, and then everybody would hear about that. And people would listen up because he made sure that his radio programs would go 24 hours a day broadcast all the time. He was hiring people just to keep speaking about Brinkley and his medicines. So in the period, Paul, in which um, a snake oil salesman has just been um, unseated as president of the most powerful country on earth, I would say that there is no better time to go and watch a thing like this as something of a sort of hilarious, but also cautionary tale about the excesses of mankind and sort of folly. Uh, it's Penny Lane's film Nuts, and I think it's still on Prime Video. Oh, it is, but you have to pay £2.49. It's worth it. No no proceeds go to uh, Romulus Brinkley's estate. Uh, <laughs> check it out. What's number one for you? Uh, number one for me, there's never, a, there's never a bad time to watch this film. This is Tom Cruise as Jerry Maguire in Jerry Maguire, um, a film that I didn't realise quite how much I loved until I watched it over Christmas, and I cried a lot. Um, but, you know, this is undoubtedly a film that knows it's a film. Jerry Maguire's written as a character that knows he's a film character, and I think the character is all the stronger for it. He kind of, you know, Jerry Maguire is a very successful, fairly wealthy um, sports agent um, who has an epiphany, comes up with a new mission statement to do business better. Um, no one else wants to come on board with him at the time. He tries to change the way his company does business, ends up leaving, cuts out on his own, initially doesn't have success, but then he finds success in other places and it's so heartwarming and I should hate it and I don't and I know I should hate it because it's all twee and it's overwritten and it's cheesy, but I, I love it. I love the character of Jerry Maguire. Tom Cruise brings so much energy to the role. Um, and it just his mission statement about how to do business differently, you know, I just kind of wish every business every business owner in the world would read out that mission to wake up one night and have the epiphany uh, that Jerry Maguire has here and kind of cast out on their own and does, and does things very differently. So it's a film with a very twee but very positive message. And uh, Jerry Maguire is just a, yeah, it's an incredible Tom Cruise performance. Um, a fantastic character. Um, with some endlessly quotable lines. So for that reason, Jerry Maguire is my number one uh, movie entrepreneur. Nice. I'm glad you went for that and not Risky Business, which was another <laughs> one where people are like, oh, it's so inspiring. You're a monster if you yeah. think that movie is inspiring. Uh, so I'm glad that we swerved most of those, uh, you know, those types of films perhaps but yeah i think an interesting list and definitely an eclectic list as well so anybody and everybody should check out any of the ones on either side of this uh, top five that you haven't seen so far almost all of them i think available somewhere at this point what isn't you know even for just a couple of pounds or dollars uh, apart from this paul I, I suppose we should head out for this week have you got any final messages or words uh, no, well, I did did get brought up that apparently my goodbye on the last podcast was quite brisk. So uh, I'm going <laughs> to, I think I just signed off with, okay, bye, which I'm not going to do this week. So uh, I'm going to stop talking now and refer people to our social media pages, which is at Strangers in Cinema on Instagram, uh, at Strangers Cinema on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, drop us an email on strangerscinema at gmail.com if you would like to. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your favourite movie entrepreneur. So uh, please, uh, please come at us. But that's it from me. Yeah, we'll be back next week with another dose of film news, previews and reviews. And until then, goodbye. Shut up and sit down.